to Walk in the Truth podcast. How do we know where to find answers to the toughest questions in life? While the simplest answer is the Bible, where do we start this search and how do we discover this truth? Today, in this teaching podcast, John Metter, lead pastor of Cross City Church, takes a specific text of the Bible and helps us find truth for the life we're searching for. so glad that you're with us this morning, and uh, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn to Genesis chapter 8, Finding God in the Dark. So some of you, that's when we began this Genesis series that we called Origins, way back when. This was back in the fall, and uh, how many of you remember walking through Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4 together? And uh, what a journey it's been as we've walked through the first eight chapters, at least we will have today, and uh, we'll be concluding through chapter 11 in these next couple of three weeks. This series is called Finding God in Chaos because we really do live in a world filled with chaos just like the world all those years ago was in chaos. You know, before we read the scripture today, I want you to come imagine for just a moment, if you will, being in Noah's shoes. Imagine being in an ark filled with eight people and thousands of animals for more than a year's time, 370 days that are in this ark. Now, I want you to imagine how dark it is with the rain that is constant the first 40 days, and imagine how uh, damp it is in that ark. Imagine what it smells like in that ark. Imagine what it must feel like to wonder after you've heard the cries of those that have died in judgment, and then the silence of the seas that are there. Imagine what that must have felt like. In chapter 7, verse 23, the scripture says that only Noah was left along with those that were with him. So you're a year into the journey, the rains have stopped, and you wonder, will we hear from God again, ever? Does God know who we are? Does God, is he able to give us the next steps that we need in life? All those questions could have been happening in Noah's life. And chapter 8 begins to address some of those. Let's stand together as I read chapter 8, the first 14 verses of the book of Genesis. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained and the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made, and sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, so she returned to him into the ark. For the ark was on the surface of all the earth. The water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came toward him towards evening. And behold, in her beak was a fleshly, freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove. But she did not return to him. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, the first of the month, 
The water was dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. So those 14 days describe the length of time, 370 days, and uh, the abating of the waters. And now the ark is about to be opened. It's a climactic moment in human history that we all come from in reality. Father, in Jesus' name, my prayer is that you'll let this text speak to us in a powerful but at the same time personal way. In the same way you are personal with Noah, you want to be personal with each one of us, and we ask you to make it so today in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Please be seated if you would. Now, I'm going to cover some sensational events here in Genesis chapter 8. In fact, the earth as we know it today, we know it because of what happened in Genesis chapter 8. The pre-flood earth was different from the post-flood earth in many different ways. Genesis 8 details that. But in spite of all the sensational things that we'll look at as we walk through Genesis 8, there's something even more important that I want you to carry away with you. Whenever God is at work in nature, whenever he's at work in his powerful intervention into nature, the most climactic things that we read in, in the passage is what God does and what God says to the people. And what God does and what God says to Noah and his family, God also does and God also says in your life. Every passage that you study, you should ask the question, what does this tell me about God? Not just what does it say about the earth or what does it say about creation or the flood or the animals, but what does this say about God and what does it say about how God interacts with me? As we walk through this text, the most dominant things that come to the surface in chapter 8 are the places in the scripture that talk about what God does. And those four points I'm going to give you today that focused on what God does. First of all, in verse 1, you can see it very easily. The Bible says, God remembered. God remembered. Look at verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. Now, when I read these accounts and I, and I do some background studies to everything we know about the ark, I mean, it's just amazing. It's mesmerizing to me. These are incredible things that God has done. And getting Noah to build the ark and having that ark house Noah, his family, and all these animals to have it lift up above the floods of judgment and the floods of the waters. And all kinds of questions come into my mind, like how did Noah finish the ark? How did the animals migrate to the ark? How did God do that? How did he arrange that? Though the water was plentiful, how did they deal with all the food needs and the waste needs? I want to know what did they do with their waste needs on that ark? And how did they wait patiently for God to move the way he was moving this whole long year? But this piece right here, God remembers, strikes me as a great, great statement. Because we all know this, God did not forget Noah and his family. But here is particular emphasis. God remembered the phrase itself is a benevolent phrase. It's a tender phrase. It's a phrase that has a, a great deal of love behind it. It means that God has, has, uh, has his eyes focused on Noah, and Noah is endeared towards God. And God loves him with a purpose, and God gifts him with a purpose, and has given him grace with a purpose. God remembered them, Noah and his family. We know that there was only one family on the earth at that point, right? And it was Noah. 
It's not like God was going to forget Noah. It's not like he was going to get him confused with anybody else on the planet at that time. So there's only one family. And God is thinking clearly about how he's going to bless them. And it comes just as the ark is about to open, just as he's about to allow, be allowed to walk on that freshly cleansed planet. Okay, I'm being told we're going to switch microphones on you, okay? From this point on, the message will get much better now. Well, I don't know how much you picked up, but let me just start at the first point there, all right? It's amazing that God remembers Noah. That's really the point of this whole first verse, that God remembers him. He's about to move in his life. And even though there's only one family, God is focused on him in a powerful, powerful way. And I also want you to realize this, that the third 370 days on the earth, or rather in the ark, is really a time of waiting for Noah. It's really a time when he wonders, will I ever hear God's voice again? I've heard the voices of people crying out around this boat as they drown. I've hear, I hear the sounds of the cattle and all the animals inside the boat, but will I ever hear the voice of God again? Of course, the answer is going to be, yes, God will speak again. But until then, Noah is waiting for God, and God is remembering Noah. And again, it's just before the ark's door is opened and Noah begins to walk into this freshly cleaned earth. I just want you to pick up for just a moment that phrase, and I want you to be reminded that no matter what kind of situation you're in in life, God will remember you just like he remembers Noah. Even in the dark times, even in the times that are not comfortable, times when judgment is going on around you, even in times like the flood or lonely times or difficult times, confusing times, trials, frustrations, everything else that was going on inside of that ark, God is reminding us that he always remembers his people, and that's going to be helpful to you one day. The same way that God remembered Noah, he remembers you. You know, I want to make this statement because it's so important. Sometimes the wait is long, but God will always remember you. How many of you have been through long waiting periods in your life just wondering if God was ever going to come through or not? Would you raise your hand? And you just wonder, God, do you know where I am? Do you know what's going on around me? Do you know how difficult this is? Do you realize how hard this is for me and those around me? But I want you to be, remember, to be remembering the fact that God has not forgotten you. I want you to know that God will remember you. And when you look for God, remember that he has known where you are all along. God remembered. But the second line is in that same verse. It says, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Now, this to me is a fascinating scene because there is a lot of water on the planet at this point. The water has come out of the fountains underneath the earth. It's come out of the skies as God's allowed all this water to take place. There's so much water. Even today, do you realize if the earth was flattened, if the surface of the earth was flattened, no valleys, no mountains, the water that exists on the planet today would cover the earth two miles deep. Do you realize that there's 71% of the earth's surface right now is covered in water? 
It's hard for us to fathom that, but the water was great on the surface of the earth during those days. And now God is going to cause this wind to blow, and it's going to dissipate the waters, creating all kinds of amazing things that result in our present planet earth. In the first 15 verses of Genesis chapter 8, you see the subsiding of the water. And in verses 2 and 3, it's summarized. Look at what that verse says. It says, and also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed. And the rain from the sky was restrained. This whole sentence starts with God cause. So God closes the fountains of the deep. God causes the floodgates of the sky to be closed. And the rain itself was restrained. And then it says, and the water receded steadily from the earth. Now, let's get a timeline of what's going on here. This is important as well. As you read through verse 3 all the way through verse 14 or 15, you can see those days begin to add up. Verse 3 tells us at the end of 150 days, the water was decreased. Verse 5 adds 74 days. Verse 6 adds another 40 days. Then from verses 6 through 12, if you're looking at your Bible, another 21 days. And then in verse 13, another 29 days. And finally in verse 14, 56 more days are detailed. And if you added all those up, you have 370 days that Noah and his family are in the ark. Now watch what happens here. The Lord is forcefully moving all this water across the surface of the earth. And as he does so, he creates massive canyons and huge mountains that we know today. Now we know that there were mountains that existed in the pre-flood world, but this movement creates even deeper canyons and even higher mountains as God moves all this water towards what we know today as the oceans and the seas. So God is causing the earth to be moved into the present condition as it is. And while this takes place, think about what's happening in the water Billions of people have died, along with billions upon billions of animals have died in the flood. And as these animals and their remains are flowing in this water, their remains are embedded into the strata of the soil and the rock at every level. Did you know that scientists have actually found marine fossils in the Himalayan mountains? Did you know that? And did you know that you can find some fish fossils on Mount Everest? And scientists struggle to explain how those fossils that are marine fossils ended up on the top of mountains. And the very simple explanation is, read the Bible. It took place during the great flood of Noah's day. In fact, the Bible actually goes so far as to describe this in Psalm 104. Here's what the psalmist declared. He said, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. As your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place where you established them. That actually explains how the earth came to be in its present form. God rearranged it all with these waters and causing those waters to move so that we see the beauty today that we have today because of the result of that flood. By the way, have you looked at the earth lately and seen how beautiful it is? Have you seen the majestic mountain peaks like Mount Denali in Alaska? And remember 
that God caused it to be that way. I remember seeing that for the first time, 150 miles away from Mount Denali in Alaska, and saying, I cannot believe a mountain's that big, that massive, that beautiful. Or have you been to the Grand Canyons? And have you noticed how deep they are and how, how, how wide they are? And remember that God caused this when he caused the waters to abate during the time of the flood. Or look at the fields of harvest and look at the deserts and remember God caused this. Or look at the mountain valleys or the river valleys and the sloping mountains like in the state of Tennessee where I used to live. What a beautiful picture. And, and thank God caused this. Or you look at the depth of the ocean. And you realize just how deep the sea is and, and realize God caused this. I mean, everything God does, even in judgment, brings about something greater than it ever could have been before. God caused all these things to happen. What an amazing picture. I mean, when I look at the world, I see God everywhere. There's a great song we've sung in years past and still sing, and it goes something like this. Oh, Lord, my God, when I... In awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displays. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. When you look at the world, you think about Genesis 1 and 2. But when you look at the world, you look at Genesis chapter 8 as well. Because the world in its present condition has been created through God's work through the flood. So now Noah is about to open the door and repopulate the earth. And by the way, before we move more into Noah's life and what he did, let me just remind you that not everybody in the world believes in a great flood. I think you're aware that many have tried to explain the earth and the world and its existence by natural explanation apart from God. And they try to make it seem as though the earth came about, the Grand Canyons, the mountains, the fossils over millions and millions and even billions of years. And they'll spend every waking moment trying to prove it from natural causes because they don't want God to be in the picture. That's the reason why all these other explanations exist. But even in Bible times, the apostle Peter said, that will happen. People will mock. As a matter of fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, you find this passage, the mockers are saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And then Peter says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed by being flooded with water. But let's keep in mind, you live around a world and in a world that tries to explain everything naturally and fails to be able to do that. We can't even explain what happened the last two or three years ago, much less the last two or three hundred thousand years ago. And it's really important for us to come to the place of saying, maybe someone has the answer and maybe someone is God. And that God gives us that answer in the Bible. As again... Atheists try to explain away the flood. They also try to explain away the many other miracles. Moses in the parting of the Red Sea or Jonah in the whale or even trying to explain away Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And all of it again is trying to deny the existence of a creator God. And what's really disturbing to me is that many Christians will buy into those explanations not realizing that it is eroding at their faith. As they're eroding their trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. 
What if I told you that Jesus had an opinion about the flood? What if I told you that Jesus had an opinion about creation, about marriage, about Jonah and the whale? Would you try to align yourself on the other side of that argument, or are you going to stand on Jesus' side? Uh, my opinion is that when you disagree with Jesus, he'll win every time. Amen? This is Jesus, God the Son, who was an eyewitness to all of creation and all that took place. Do you remember when God asked Job in the book of Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Of course, he says that because only God was there. Jesus was there. And Jesus has a word. In John chapter 3, Jesus is having an interaction with Nicodemus. And he says this to Nicodemus. He said, if I tell you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Just keep in mind, Jesus affirmed creation. Jesus affirmed biblical marriage. Jesus affirmed Noah and the flood. Jesus affirmed Jonah and the whale. And in the telling of the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus made this statement. He said, if they do not listen to Moses, that is the author of the first five books of the Bible, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You know what my encouragement to you today is? Come to trust Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Come to believe the Bible and, and cast your confidence on the Word of God because that gives us the greatest explanation by the greatest eyewitness you'll ever have, Jesus Christ. And I think that's why Jesus gave us those words about what's so controversial today. God caused. And then God spoke. God spoke. You know, in the midst of all this, God is going to speak to Noah. And in verse 15, here's what it says. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. You know, the last time we hear God speak in this text is 370 days ago. And now he's speaking to Noah again. Would you agree with me that sometimes God goes a long distance between the last time he spoke and the next time he speaks to us? Sometimes that seems like a long, long period of time. But here's my experience with God. If I just obey God the last time I heard him, then I'm still on the right track until he says something to me that's new. So God is about to speak to Noah, and he's about to tell him what to do, and basically it is go out of the ark. Go into this new world that I've placed in front of you. Everything is new. All of creation is given the command to be fruitful and to multiply. God is affirming again his design that he gave in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. Go out two by two, repopulate the globe. But notice the first thing Noah does. The first thing Noah does after God speaks to him is Noah worships. Now by now, Noah's got a great resume for building. He's built an ark. He's built this massive boat that, that has transported he and his eight members of his family and all the animals left on the earth. He's got all kinds of abilities. He could go home and build a home for his family so that they could be on solid ground. You ever been on a boat before? And have you ever been on a boat long enough where you want to get on solid ground? Some people have been known to kiss the ground when they get off of a boat. He could have built a boat. He could have pursued a dream that he might have had during those 370 days. Moses could have done, Noah could have done almost anything he wanted to do, but instead of anything else, 
when he hears God's voice, here's what he does. He worships God. He pauses and worships God. In verse 20, you see it. It said that Noah built an ark for the Lord and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offering to the altar of the Lord. And as I was reading this text, I was wondering, what do you talk about for 370 days in the ark? I mean, there's no Netflix. There's no Amazon Prime. There's nothing there. You can't exactly look out the windows because the deluge is happening. So they're conversing. They're talking. It wouldn't surprise me for Noah to do what God would have wanted him to do, and that is to talk about the God of creation. Noah probably shared with his sons and daughters everything he knew about God, everything he knew about life, everything he knew about resting and worshiping God on the seventh day, which was something that they had learned from Adam and Eve. Probably everything they knew about sacrifice and worshiping God, Noah passed on to his sons and their wives. And basically, he's following the pattern of Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, where he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. That's where the Lord took animals of skin and clothed the naked Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. He's basically following what Cain did in the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, verse 4, but he's leading them to worship. I mean, I think this is a great moment for us to pause for just a second and say, Noah is that guy who had an opportunity to lead his family well on day one after the ark, and the first thing he does is lead his family to worship. Did you lead those around you well, the way Noah did at that moment in time? Well, Noah didn't do everything right, but he did that one right. He came before the God of creation, the one who held his life in his hands and said, God, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to lead my family to worship you. I'm going to make sure that I put you in the first place of my life. Now, the Bible says here that the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. He smelled the aroma of worship. He was pleased with Noah. Now, you consider that from the perspective of God. From God's perspective, billions that he has created and allowed to have life have ignored God, their creator. And you've seen them reject your plans. And you've seen them reject your love and your warnings. Billions have ignored you. But here is one man, Noah. The Bible says he found grace in the eyes of God, and he's going to obey Noah. He's going to obey God. These eight people with Noah, they've loved their creator. They've trusted their creator. They've cried out to their creator. They've seen him come through on their behalf, and now they're worshiping him. And is God pleased? Absolutely. God is pleased because of their worship. Keep this in mind. The first priority of our life is always going to be to listen to God and to worship God. And when you listen to God, you have all kinds of reasons to worship God because the God of creation will speak to you and lead you and guide you. You know, the truth is that so many believe Jesus, but they don't place him in the first place of their thoughts or their lives or their priorities. But Noah has this part right when it comes to worshiping God, and we need to have this right when it comes to worshiping God. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus made this statement that's, that's the it's kind of one of those statements that have stuck with me over the years. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The context is the context of worry. People are worried about life and things and their future and everything else. And Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first his righteousness, and everything you're now worried about 
It'll all be taken care of in good time. And that says to me, worship comes first. Worship comes first, and that's what Noah is doing. That first act of worship that Noah and his family are doing moves my heart. I can see them gathered around this very costly sacrifice with grateful hearts commemorating the fact that God has brought them through. Why would we miss those opportunities that we have to worship God? Put him first. And then finally, God promised so much here. There's so much here. If you were looking, verse 21, you'll see that the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the land on account of man. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. There's so much more to say about this promise, but you need to get at least this. God makes a commitment to himself. I will never flood the earth again. When God judges the earth, in the final days, it won't be by water. It will be by fire, the Scripture tells us. And notice that the judgment of the flood did not change the heart of mankind. But in spite of man's wickedness, judgment will never again happen this same way. When someone sees the rains or the waters begin to rise and it looks like a flood is coming, I never worry about the fact that God's going to judge the world again by flood because he promised he would never do it again. That's what the rainbow in the sky is all about. We'll look at that more next week. But that's what God has promised. But I also want you to remember what God said about Noah. I go all the way back to chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. As you leave today, I want you to think about what that means. And I want you to understand what it doesn't mean. Noah didn't get grace or favor because he built the boat. He hadn't done anything by the time this statement was made. Noah built the boat because he found grace. He didn't get grace because he built the boat. God's grace picked him out. God's grace enabled him. God's grace drew him to God. It saved him. It sustained him. It empowered him to do everything he needed to do to save his family. It's all by grace. And it all comes on the first end, the front end of your relationship with God. Hundreds and thousands of years later, literally, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that you can boast. It's all by grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. You need to find grace in the eyes of God. You're not called to build a boat like Noah was, but you're called to know God, and you're called to serve God and worship God. You need the grace that Noah had, and God gives you that grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the fact that the ark gives us a great picture of the gospel. Remember what we've been talking about when it comes to God's character, God is a loving, merciful God who doesn't want to punish us for our sin, but at the same time, a just judge who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. And we talked about the offense of sin and how sin ultimately doesn't just hurt us, but it defends this holy God. And you can certainly see that in the account of the flood and the ark. God's heart was grieved because of the sinfulness of mankind. But when we get to the S of the gospel, we talk about the sufficiency of Christ or the sacrifice of Christ. And you see that in the ark, at least in a picture, a type of what's to come. That ark was totally adequate to save Noah and his family and all of the animals. And it points to the one who is alone adequate to save us, and that is Jesus Christ. God always brings the solution to our problems. 
And he brings that in the ark in Noah's day, but he brings that to us in Jesus Christ. My question to you today is, have you found grace in the eyes of God? Not because of what you've done, because you realize, though, that God loves you, that God desires to walk with you. Now, there's one more passage that I want to look at for just a moment, verse 22. Jump down to that. It says, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Now, the same God that created the heavens and the earth upholds all these things. This passage reminds me that I need to be responsible while on the earth, but sane and logical in my thinking. Man cannot destroy this earth, and he will not destroy this earth. Have we not learned that yet? And yet God says this. He says there's always going to be the seasons as long as the earth remains. It's a very clear promise. The seasons will always remain. And when someone says, oh, it's going to be so hot, we're all going to burn up, I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, and say, no, the Bible says we're going to have seasons, cool and hot. And when someone says, oh, we're going to have floods that overwhelm the whole earth, I'm going to go back to the promise of God in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 22. These things will not cease. We can trust God to keep the earth in good enough condition for him to finalize his plan on this planet. No one's going to usurp him in that. And don't you be worried about it. But the bottom line is that I want you today to find grace favor in the eyes of God. I want you to realize he loves you. He cares about you. Even though the rest of the world is in total chaos, God will find you and show you his mercy and show you his grace. You know, ultimately, we don't find God in chaos. God finds us in chaos. And he might be finding you today. Over these next few moments, I'm going to extend three invitations to you. Number one, I'm going to ask you to consider stopping by a decision station on the way out today and taking a moment to talk to someone about your relationship with God. It may be today that you came into this room thinking that you had to do something in order to be right with God, that you had to keep a list of do's and not not complete a list of don'ts. You might have thought you had to be of a certain religion in order to have access to God. But I'm here to tell you that God wants a relationship with you just between you and him. He wants you to find grace in his sight, and the grace he extends to you is through Jesus Christ. And I want you to know today before you leave that that you can have a relationship with God, the God of the universe, the God that created heavens and the earth, who preserved Noah and all of his family through that time of judgment. He can preserve you. It's really important that you know that you have that invitation. So I encourage you to stop by a decision station. They're very clearly marked and well lit on your way out today. Second invitation is this. I would love to visit with you personally in our guest reception center. It's just right outside the center exit doors across the hallway. And I'd love to talk to you about what Cross City Church is all about. Thirdly, I want to invite you to pick up an invite card and invite someone to come back with you next week as we worship And as we go through the Word of God, and especially as we prepare for Easter, an amazing Easter is ahead of us, can't wait for all those moments. Invite someone to come with you. Those three invitations I extend to you today. Would you please stand with me as I close this in a word of prayer? Father, today I am so very thankful that you are the God of the universe, and yet at the same time you know each of us personally, intimately. Father, I'm thankful today 
that there are people in the room that need to know you. And they need to know that you're waiting for them to turn to you. I ask that you draw them to yourself. Give them the courage and the boldness to look to you, to ask you to be their Lord, to be their Savior, and to talk to someone about that incredible decision. Father, today I am grateful that you've also given us a promise that while the whole earth may be in a panic, you're in complete control, and we have confidence in you, that we can walk in faith and not in fear throughout whatever is ahead. So, Father, today I pray that you'll give us that confidence as well as we trust you the same way Noah did all those years ago. Thank you so much for the stories of Scripture that explain so much about the world as we know it. But more than that, the words of Scripture that point us to you, your character, your love, your affection for us. I ask you that you allow us to experience that personally. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.